take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. You can actually stop off at Titus chapter 1. And what I want to do tonight is just bleed a little bit if I can. I know that there are some sermons that are more didactic in nature. They're more teaching. There are some that are more motivational and applicational in nature. There are some that are more evangelistic and some that are more sanctifying. This is more of a reflection of Paul just opening his pastoral heart up and laying on Titus, who was assigned to the Isle of Crete, a pattern for church leadership, a pattern for church involvement, the DNA and the culture of a church that ought to exist in really a way that no other book in the Bible outlines, no other book in the Bible explains. Titus is a a protege of Paul. He's been out on the island of Crete. Um, He's there with a special assignment. There wasn't one church in Crete. There were lots of churches all over the island with uh, little shepherds, pastors, elders, uh, but not in the fully established way that you and I know it. People were coming, hearing the gospel. They were disseminating, going back to their homes and meeting basically in huts, in living rooms and talking about gospel truths. They had very little uh, to go on in terms of scripture, only the oral tradition of the gospel that had been passed on them. They were just beginning to get uh, parchments of copies of different epistles that would make their way by boat over to Crete. They were a very immature and fledgling group of people who were meeting in different houses, establishing local bodies, establishing churches there. The book of Titus is Paul's letter to young Titus, this pastor, his friend, to do one simple, main, most important thing. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Why? Here it is. So that you would set in order what remains. Literally, that you would give order to what's out of order. That you would give order out of not chaos, but just disorder. These churches weren't necessarily running around in error like the Corinthians were. When you read 1 Corinthians, that's, that is a serious spiritual spanking. He's saying, Corinthians, it's about 12 verses of commendation. And then uh, the rest of the book is uh, telling them to get their, their act together. That's not what's going on here. Paul is not so much writing to the churches as much as he's writing to the leadership and the pastors to then lead the churches. So it's both and. This is listening to pastor to pastor kind of talk. He says, I left you in Crete to set in order what remains. Now what follows is how to set a church in order. He starts very naturally with what? Leadership. He gives a great description there that's a a companion to 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the qualifications and the giftedness and, and the spiritual maturity that should exist in leaders, in elders. He says, I appoint elders in every city. Please notice that elders is plural. He didn't say go make an elder in every place. Have little bitty, uh, you know, kind of uh, almost Baptist popes in every, every church. That's not what he was organizing. He said, have elders, have a group of men in each church who would be able to give leadership and set in order what is remaining in the church. Then he gives a list of what's going on, uh, what should be going on rather, in the life and the integrity of these men. Just a little footnote to that. If you'll read that section, which we could spend a serious amount of time, many, many weeks on. If any man is above reproach, 
The husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. I love the King James, which says, filthy lucre. That just has more oomph than that. Sort of game. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the word, the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He's saying these are men who have spiritual qualifications, godly character, and also have the theological acumen. They're mature enough to be able to teach doctrine and defend truth. Just as a side note, we are always looking for those men in our church. I hope every man in every seat in this building looks at that and says, boy, that is something, at least in character and in spirit, that I long to aspire to. Even if you never serve as an elder on a board, to become elder qualified ought to be the the aspiration of all of us as men. Then he talks about the problems that create in verse 10. I love the, the designation in verse 12, uh, talking about the Cretans. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I don't know if he's talking about modern-day America or ancient Crete there, but we understand that. He says, confront them, teach the truth, refute error, defend the truth. And then... There, there, there's a, a chapter division in chapter 2. And as we've been noticing in Romans, these chapter divisions weren't originally there. This is just the next paragraph. As for you, Titus, speak the things, preach the things, proclaim the things which are in accordance with or fitting or flowing out of sound doctrine. Now, now here's the challenge in a church like ours. We have such a long and storied and in a spiritual way proud, if I can say that, history of sound doctrine. I'm so thankful for the baton that's been handed off from generation to generation in our church. To look back in over 50 years, no chapter exists in Southwest Bible or Mission Road Bible Church's existence where... This church was unfaithful to the gospel, had liberal leanings, had an emergent chapter, anything like that. Praise God that God has kept us doctrinally sound. I don't take that for granted. What you would expect after this is a list. Make sure you keep your Christology in focus. Make sure you know your pneumatology is attached to the truth of the Holy Spirit beginning in Acts and flowing all the way through Revelation. Make sure that your eschatology is exactly down to every hour. Make sure he doesn't say any of that. What follows is a bit of a surprise. He says, speak the things, preach the things which are in accordance with fitting for applying, implying sound doctrine. So if you're going to apply sound doctrine, it's interesting to me to say, okay, Paul, you're going to teach us how to apply sound doctrine. What's the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth? And I'm ready for this theological tsunami. You know what he says? Older men. Now, the first thing you have to say is, is that me? If you're a girl, you're saying definitely not. If you're a lady, you're saying, I don't think so. Guys have a little trouble because older men, I mean, what qualifies as being an older man? Is it gray hair? 
I walked in uh, after a week of vacation to the office with my friend Bob and Aaron, my friend Adam. Only to have Aaron look at me and say, man, you got grayer over vacation. Am I lying? I'm not lying. And I said, that's because I was with my sons for a week. Yet he did say I look good. Are you laughing with me or at me? Okay, good. I appreciate that. What qualifies as an older man? Biblically, what qualifies as an older man is simply this. Someone who is mature in the faith. And it's a relative term. Someone who's maturer than someone who's less mature. You say, well, that's kind of relative and that's kind of subjective. You're right. That means, now now watch this, an older man contextually could be someone we would think of as younger, but they're older than younger men who are less mature. Do you follow that math? It's talking about those who are established, specifically probably older elders here. Gray hair was proverbially intended, but it contextually means more mature than less mature. He says, older men, this is the application of sound doctrine. Older men are to be, stop right there. If you underline things, circle things in your Bible, to be is a critical, critical verb. Speak the things fitting for sound doctrine, which results in being. It's not just knowing, it's not just teaching. Teaching and knowing have to translate into character, into being, or they aren't really absorbed. Older men are to be. And then he gives a list, gentlemen, who are older men. Just assume you're an older man. If you have gray hair with me, that's great. If you think you might have gray hair someday, join us. Older men are to be temperate. And we don't have time to break all this down. I just want to give you a high altitude approach. Temperate means uh, uh, highs aren't high and lows aren't low. You're, you're just stable. Dignified, the ability to act appropriate in any given situation. Sensible, you do what makes sense. You have common sense, spiritually and ethically. Sound in faith, meaning we know what we believe and how to articulate it. Sound in love. Which means that we actually care about people and we're con- unconditionally committed to sinners. Sound in perseverance or the ability to stand firm, steadfastness. Those are to be the older men. And can I just tell you, if you're, if you're north of 30, 40, 50, 60, north of that, You are to be the leaders in this example. Then he says, older women, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. Older men, now older women. And he says something to you, ladies. Likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. That's the ability to act proper and appropriate. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Pretty self-explanatory. Teaching... What is good? Hang on. I thought in 1 Timothy 3, it says, I do not allow a woman to teach. 1 Corinthians 11 says women are to teach in a church. What is this? Women are to teach. Hold on. Hold on. Don't get excited. Hold on. Teaching what is good so that they may, now we find their students and their pupils. Encourage. Literally, they, it's a horse term. You train like a a horse. You to break a horse and train it to be in line. That's the word. So that they may train or encourage the young women. So now we find something out. 
There are older men and older women in the church who have been called by God to be something, to believe something, and to know something. Then to teach someone younger those same things. With the women, he says, to teach the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Unless you think, men, that, well, Titus 2 is, is for women. See the word in verse 6, likewise. Likewise refers to the older men, just like the older women. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. We talked about this before. You got all this list of, of the older women, what they're supposed to teach the younger women. And for the younger men, there's one thing. It's, my wife always says, that's all they can handle, honey. They just, you know, look at me. One thing, urge the young men to be sensible. It's actually a really good English translation. It means do what makes sense. Have common sense and spiritual sense. And what Paul is telling Titus is, if you can get the guys to do that, you got a lot of traction. This is a good thing. Then he goes into Titus his own, uh, his, himself and says, in all things show yourself, which we can also apply to the young men. To be an example of good deeds, purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Very interesting. Paul says that the opponent, the devil, our opponents, the world, is waiting like like a lion, waiting to devour us, waiting to say something bad about us. The church's purifying internal defense mechanism ought to be, this is the big word, discipleship. The older transferring character, example, and the body of truth to the next generation. At the core of Titus, the book of Titus, is the establishment of patterns, ways of producing and maintaining a healthy church and healthy churches. After church leadership, he turns to this phenomenon, this culture that's supposed to exist in the church called older dealing with younger, men with men, women with women in discipleship. Gender appropriate training to be godliness. Now, I don't want to get off on this too much, but notice that it's men with younger men. Older women, older godly women with younger women. That doesn't mean that, that uh, I can't listen to a conversation and learn something from, from a lady who says something truthful. It doesn't mean that, that, uh, that uh, my sons can't learn something from, um, from their uh, mom. It doesn't mean that, that a woman can't hear a Sunday school teacher and learn from someone who's not. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about a paradigmatic example, a pattern that is supposed to exist in the church Where godly masculinity, godly spirituality is passed from man to man. Godly femininity, godly understanding of a woman's role and a woman's unique ways to honor Christ is passed from woman to woman. This is discipleship. Now when you break all this character and and these tasks down, it really boils down to two things. Example and instruction. If you can just walk away and listen to those, uh, remember those two things, you'll understand what this passage is about. It's about being a good example, and it's about having uh, an outlet for instruction. Said conversely, it's about finding a good example and finding someone to instruct you. Said even more simply, 
all of us ought to be in relationships in which we're being taught and according to which we can see the example of godliness in the person who's teaching us. And all of us who are believers ought to be in a relationship where we're sharing with someone who we are and what we know. Let's break that down a little bit. Discipleship is first based on example. Example, who we are, what we're like. Jesus said in Luke 640, this is a scary principle. You can say it with me. A disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher, his master, his instructor. This is a parental principle. This is a church principle. This is a discipleship principle. You will end up being like the people you're instructed by and by the examples you look up to. So the example ought to be, first of all, embedded in character. It's embedded in character. If you're going to be a good example, if you're going to find a good example, it's about character. It's what the person is really like. If I hear one more politician tell me how important character is, all right? Character is... That, that's just acting a certain way. Character here is acting like Jesus. It's a godly character. It follows after the example and instruction of Christ. So are you the kind of person who has an emulatable life? That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Are you a person who can say, well, Paul said, think about, think about the reality of this. Follow me as I follow Christ. We love that as I follow Christ. How about the follow me? If you follow me, if you think like me, if you act like me, you will think like Christ and act like Christ. That was Paul's point. Is that in your range of desire? Is that, is that who you want to be? The second category is not just character, but it's, let's call it spiritual skillful living. Spiritual skillful living, which is another way of saying you know how to apply and imply the text of Scripture. You, it works out in your life. You know how to raise children in a godly home. You know how to be dignified as a man. Let's think about that example for a second. Paul says this is to be. Remember what we started with. Older men are to be. Older women likewise are to be. Teach the young women to Love, to love, to be. Urge the young men to be sensible. That character is identified and exemplified by decisions, by skillful, willful living. It shows up in life. Are you ready for this? It shows up in every, remember our mission statement? Every dimension of life. If you remember me telling you this story again and you this illustration again, you say, ah, I've heard that. Just humor me for a second because it's the best illustration I think I ever heard in my life that stuck with me. Junior high camp, Central Baptist Church, youth pastor, I don't even remember his name. He basically told us as junior hires, your goal in life is to be, you remember what I told you? A pot pie, not a TV dinner. Silly, we laugh. It has made a massive difference in my thinking. Now, some of you are a little too young to remember TV dinners. 
came in this aluminum thing. There, you had a brownie and corn and carrots and something that resembled meatloaf. And there was always corn or green beans in the brownie, which was a problem. You had to mix that. But there was, it was all sectioned off, right? Every, every food group was sectioned off. And the idea was it all cooked separately. And the idea was that you could eat it separately. A pot pie is not intended to be that way. All of it is intended to get the same bite of everything in one bite. And I remember explaining the illustration is this. You're to be the same everywhere. Not this way at church, this way at school, this way at work, this way with your family, this way with your friends, this way with your cousins, this way with your dog. You're to be the same everywhere all the time. That's consistency. Actually, that's the word for dignity. The ability to respond appropriately in any any given situation. You know how to apply God's ways and God's standards. It's built on character and it exercises itself in application or spiritual skillful living. Now the first thing you need to do in looking at these examples is, we say it every Sunday, it's in every dimension of life. Everywhere, all the time. 24, 7, 365. Never an off moment. Never an off way. Never different when we choose entertainment. Never different when we listen to jokes with certain group of people. Never different when there are ungodly people trying to end. It's the same all the time. Perfectly? No, not perfectly. Just spent time at the Lord's table confessing. Not perfectly, but the issue is we are who we are. That's our example. It also is about instruction. It's a teaching ministry. Discipleship is a teaching ministry. It means there's a transference of data, of spiritual truth, of spiritual content from one mind and from one life to the other. But it's not always singularly linear. Meaning, if I'm in a discipleship relationship with a younger man, that doesn't mean that that's a one-way street. He could never teach me something. It means that you have spiritual content that you're chewing on, you're digesting together, you're studying, you're, you're, you're loving the Lord by what you're looking at, the, as you're looking at the different nuances of who he is, how he's revealed himself, what he's revealed about himself. It's instruction. It means teaching. It's not just a feeling. It's not just, you know, the, 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 the experiential side of Christianity, as a friend of mine once told me. I'm into experiencing God, not being instructed. That's interesting. So let me ask you, who are you teaching? Old men? Old women? I can say that because Titus did. Older men and older women? Who are you teaching? Who's teaching you? You say, how formal does that mean? Formal enough to where you know you're being taught. Formal enough where you know you're teaching. I'm all about Deuteronomy 6. As you go, as you sit, as you rise, all the time. I get that. But eventually you have to talk about something. It's not just example. It's also instruction. The declaration of the things which are fitting for sound doctrine means... More mature teach the less mature. And get this, the less mature seek out the more mature to be sought, to be taught. 
You're saying, that's a person whose life I'd like to emulate. What makes it, uh, this church unique, what makes every church unique, what, as I look around at Mission Road, it just so many godly people, so many young people. Where's the connective tissue? Now, the question instantly becomes, well, that sounds great. So how do I find someone to disciple? We're going to break up and we'll go out in the, uh, the foyer there and you just go tap someone on. Do you want me to disciple you? Check. Yes, no, or maybe. That's not how it works. It should start informally with a relationship. But it can start formally by a request. Now, this puts a lot of pressure on all of us. But it should put pressure on us. The thing I've been praying about more than anything else for our church in the last three years I've been here is God, please give us, make us, cause us to have a culture of mutual discipleship. Care groups are an expression of that, and I'm thankful for the care groups. But it goes beyond that. What's talking of, being talked about here is very specific instruction with a very emulatable example. Is it one-on-one? Sure, it could be one-on-one. It could be a couple-on-one. It could be, you don't have to have one single person that you're discipled by. If you have a couple of people, can I just talk specifically to the junior high, high school, and collegians? You, you all ought to have a couple of people, a staff person, someone with gray hair. We're not as weird as we look, as I look. Do you have that relationship where you can say, I'd like to learn something from you. You say, how, how, how do I get that? Watch this. Drum roll. Ready? You ask for it. You go to someone and you say, hey, can we, can we just get together and talk about life, the Lord? The, bigger, the, the, the biggest um, obstacle to discipleship is we just don't know each other well enough. Now, care groups should facilitate that first and foremost. That's one of the main reasons we have care groups. Uh, I, th- I think all of you have been taught, care group, told, care groups are great when you're together, but it's really, you gather to have that relationship so that you can get even one-on-one, two-on-two. It gets less and better with the depth. Do you have... Someone who's discipling you. Do you have someone you're discipling? I love it when a high schooler, junior high, hears this passage or reads this passage. And they say, well, who, who am I supposed to disciple? Really, really easy answer. Someone who knows less than you. You can find someone who knows less than you. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Next word, teaching them. Does it say, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them if you're old enough and you're not a junior high or not a high schooler and have a theology degree. There is none of that, is it? The expectation of the Lord is multiplication. Multiplication through discipleship. Health of a church through discipleship. It's just spiritual friendships. It means those of us who are older are changing and becoming and sharing and teaching. Those who are younger or less mature in the faith are finding people who are changing and becoming and sharing and teaching what they learn from them with someone else. Now here's the big 
apex and climax to this passage into the sermon. Are you ready? Okay, eye contact. You ready? Here he goes. Ready? Discipleship, biblically, is not an optional part of Christianity. It's not extra credit. It's not extracurricular. It's not after school. It is central to the health of a church. Otherwise, you know what we end up doing? Here's what church looks like without discipleship. People get together once a week, maybe twice a week. I've heard of three times a week. They get together and they hear a speech about God and they go home. That is not New Testament Christianity or ecclesiology or church, is it? No, I I like preaching. Please come hear hear the sermons, okay? The idea is not to have a church that believes in preaching and sound doctrine and preaching the word and saying, okay, here's discipleship, here's preaching, we're going to do this. The idea is not to touch this. The idea is to bring discipleship up in concert with it. Who are you discipling? Now, here's the, remember that apex, that conclusion to the sermon, this passage? Here it is. Here's the drum roll in your stomach. Are you ready? If you and I are not involved in discipleship, we're missing the mark. That's the Greek definition for the word sinning, to sin. Now, this isn't the guilt trip. This is the encouragement. It's for us all to stop and say, am I doing, being what God has called me to do and be? Now, I know what some of you are saying. I I see young mothers out there thinking, really? You want me to disciple? Are you kidding me? I mean, have you seen my schedule? You know what? I've not seen yours, but I've seen it happen in my own house I get it the idea here ladies let me encourage you you probably have one of the best avenues to disciple of anyone you don't have to change anything just bring a younger woman along to see what you do and talk about the Lord while you're doing it some of you men are thinking well you don't understand I work 40 50 60 I've heard guys say I work 100 hours a week no you don't you feel like you work 100 hours a week Do nothing alone. If you're going to buy shoes, take someone with you. If you're going to run an errand, take someone with you. If you have a Saturday morning or you're watching a ball game, watch it with someone. The idea is Deuteronomy 6, which is to bring someone along with you. Here it is. To see what you're doing and to do it like you do. But that implies something, doesn't it? That we're doing something and being something that they want to do and who they want to be. There's an obvious gender on gender pattern, as I said. An older and a younger pattern. Older meaning more mature. So why don't we do this? Let me ask some questions. Why, real quickly, why don't we do this? I really tried. I have one, two, three. I had three eyes. And I wanted them to have them all five be eyes. But I couldn't find good eyes for the last two, okay? That's just a... Sickness of a preacher. The first is the first reason we don't do this is ignorance. We just don't know to do it. And, and I recognize there are some people who, who this is a foreign concept to them. Really? How does discipleship work? That's okay. Come talk to one of the pastors, care group leaders, elders. We'd love to begin talking to you, disciple you to do discipleship. That's okay. So if you're ignorant of that, ignorance is okay because it can be solved. 
It's okay to be ignorant, my dad used to say. It's not okay to be stupid. Ignorance can be solved. He said, son, there's some parts of your stupid life I just can't solve. But that's for another sermon. (laughs) Indifference. Excuse me, ignorance. Second is indifference. This is the harder one. Indifference, meaning I don't really care. I don't really care as much as as I should, but I don't care that I don't care. You're just indifferent. And you think, discipleship is okay. Maybe I should have done it. Maybe I should do it. I, can't have, I don't have time. I'm not going to do it right now. So um, I'm just indifferent to that right now. Someday. It's someday-ology. In ignorance, indifference. A third, insecurity. You just think, I, I'm just not smart enough. This is a real problem for some reason. It's a real challenge. They think, I don't know enough. I, I'm, I'm not godly enough. I, I just, If that's your heart, you are in the best place to disciple. It's okay. Welcome to the rest of us trying to be godly, right? If you're insecure about it, security comes by studying and praying and knowing the Lord and having something to offer someone. You know, I had three eyes. Ignorance, indifference, insecurity. Number four, laziness. Laziness. There have been times in my life when I have failed in my discipleship pursuit just out of laziness. It's hard. It takes time. It costs money. It takes effort, sacrifices. Discipleship will drain you in every way that you can imagine while at the same time fulfilling you in ways you can't even imagine. And the fourth reason, and the, most, the fifth reason, and the most serious challenge of why people don't disciple is disobedience. They say, I'm not going to do that. That's not for me. There are no riders or qualifications on the Great Commission, which is to make disciples and to teach them, to baptize them, to care for them. So where does this go? Um, next week, we're going to have a, a members meeting. We're going to talk specifically about some ways that we can do all of this better. And uh, I want to encourage you to come next week. We're going to talk about some structural issues. We're going to talk about some applicational issues. We're going to talk more about this uh, uh, in, a, in a specific way. But the biggest question that all of us need to walk away from this passage with is this. Am I willing to disciple... And am I seeking someone to disciple me? It doesn't always have to be this mentorship on Starbucks on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. It can even be a group of people who get together to talk about things of the Lord. Discipleship can be a mutual thing. But it must include the, dispen- the dispensing of your spiritual maturity and your spiritual ontology, who you're becoming, your example, to someone. So how are you doing? How is your discipleship? Who are you discipling and who is discipling you? Good question to talk about at the dinner table tonight, right? And if you say, well, really nobody, that's an okay answer if you're going to say, but I'm going to find someone. But if you say, no one and I'm indifferent, insecure, and lazy and disobedient about it, that's, that's not a good way to respond to Titus. I'm convinced that our church is very healthy in some areas. 
But in the areas that it's not healthy, it can only be addressed by mutual admonition and involvement of the body by strategic, intentional discipleship. Do you take this seriously as for you? Every Christian believer has something to offer to someone else. And every Christian believer, everyone who knows the Lord, needs to be aggressive about growing so that we can offer more to someone by way of example and by the way of instruction. If you follow Titus all the way through... He actually says in chapter 3, remind them to be subject to the rulers, have a good reputation in the community. He reminds us of what we used to be in chapter 3, verse 3. We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating each other. But here it is. When the kindness of God our Savior, 3 verse 4, And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. By whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that here is the great verse. Ready? Being justified by his grace. We would be made heirs according to the promise of the hope. According to the hope of eternal life. You say, what does that mean? Heirs of a common inheritance tend to communicate about what they have and what they're going to get. And this isn't like the brothers who sit around trying to, to chop up their parents' inheritance after they die. We know what our inheritance is. If we are all heirs together, shouldn't we be enjoying that with one another and sharing on that mystery? Let's pray together. As we do, I just want to ask you to please, please consider the wonderful joy of discipleship. And think about the who for you and the who from you. Father, identify discipleship relationships in our life. That we can have spiritual friendships that involve the sharing and the emulation of example that we can have spiritual friendships that involve strategic and intentional instruction that we would have a healthy church because we're caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, discipling one another, instructing and striving to be examples. Father, we want this church to be a light to Kansas City. We want the world to take notice because we take notice of each other. We want to love one another to such dimension and degree that a lost and dying world would look at how we care for one another and see that we could only do so because we belong to you. They will know we love you, Father, when we love and care for and disciple one another. Motivate us, stimulate us, isolate people in our mind that we can talk to and about and for. Use this body 
truly minister to one another to greater health for our church and a greater voice in our community. We want to do this because you've instructed us, but Father, we want to do this because we know Jesus would receive specific glory from discipleship. This was your commission to us. Give us the grace to receive and to employ it. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.